Hey, game changers and aspiring business moguls. Welcome to the Entrepreneur's Den, the podcast where we learn to turn adversity into opportunity. I'm Mo, a business enthusiast, motivational speaker, and eight-figure serial entrepreneur who has worn many hats and weathered many storms. Every success story is a tale of constant adaption, revision, and change. In each episode of the Entrepreneur's Den, you will hear tales of triumph and defeat lessons learned and how passions turn into paychecks. In other words, I don't talk the talk, but walk the walk. Sit back, buckle up, and let's dive into the exciting world of entrepreneurship. This is The Entrepreneur's Den. What's up, beautiful people? Welcome back to The Entrepreneur's Den, where we dive deep, very deep, into the crafts that make break entrepreneurs around the globe. Today, we have got someone special, very special, particularly to my heart, who is going to help us, all of us, unlock the secrets of power communication. I'm thrilled to welcome Ed Darling, a maestro in the art of public speaking and someone who transforms anxious professionals, including myself, by the way, into unshakable speakers through Project Charisma. With Dan's expertise, we're going to explore how you can speak with clarity, confidence, and guest it, charisma. Welcome to the Dan Ads. Thank you very much for that amazing introduction, Mo. There's only one thing I have to correct you on there, which is that when you came to me, you certainly weren't lacking confidence and you certainly didn't <laughs> have any anxiety. <laughs> you came to me almost a, a ready-made speaker, and at most, all I did was buffer a few of your little edges up and give you a little polish that was about all I can lay claim to thank you absolutely well I'm thrilled to have you on board the pleasure all mine now before we dive into the nitty-gritty of I would say captivating an audience ad I would love if you could give our listeners a snapshot just a snapshot of your journey what's the story of Ed Darling and how did you find your passion in helping others speak with such confidence? Okay, so in a very small nutshell, Mo, I developed severe social anxiety around 12 years ago. I was at university at the time and it sent me on a spiral where my life got turned upside down. And I went from being an otherwise confident young man to being someone who could barely have a conversation or a phone call without having a panic attack. Uh, in order to eventually overcome that after a few years, I threw myself into acting and into public speaking, the two scariest things I could think of. Idea being, if I can simply keep pushing my comfort zone, eventually I will have to find my confidence. That took me on a whole different life journey than what, than what I expected to be on, where I performed on stages, spoke in front of audiences, and that has brought me to today, where I now use all of those skills and all that experience to help other people, professionals, business leaders, to overcome their own fears and speak with a little bit of their own charisma. Wow. To be honest with you, that's a very inspirational journey, which would make me very, very, very eager, I would say, to ask you if you could share with us, all of us, that defining moment when you decided to turn your fear of public speaking into your life's work in more details, please. 
Okay, well, there's been quite a few defining moments, Mo, but I'll, sh- I'll share one with you as a, as a story. The first time I was working as an actor, it was uh, at a play here in Manchester. And I'd never done any acting before. And at this time, I was still deeply anxious around social situations. Hated being the center of attention and would likely have a panic attack if I was kind of put in that uncomfortable situation. But then I found myself backstage five minutes before opening night of a play, right? All the other actors are buzzing around. They're excited. They can't wait to get out there. I can hear the audience kind of walking into the venue and taking their seats. And I'm sat behind the red curtains of the stage, feeling all of this anxiety bubble up. And at the very start of the show, my character had to step out and deliver the first scene. Well, this was pivotal to the rest of the show, right? And I had this idea that I could very easily step outside, see all of these eyes, have a panic attack, forget all of my lines and completely mess up the entire show at the very beginning of the play, right? And I thought to myself, if that happens, I will probably have to just walk out and hopefully never speak to any of these people again, right? So that's pretty bad. That's a pretty bad scenario, okay? But then I thought the only thing worse than that would be if I didn't have the courage to try in the first place, if I bottled it and didn't step out at all. So I was faced with this, you know, just A or B, very easy choice to make. Do I do it or do I not? So I stepped out onto stage. I faced my fear. It all went absolutely fine. The rest of the play went great. The rest of the run went really well. And I found myself enjoying it and, you know, feeling like I can do this. And that was a pivotal moment in in realizing that I do not have to be held back by my fears and that you can succeed even though you're nervous. Awesome. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm not sure what I would do if I was you. I, I doubt, I doubt that so many people, so many people would have the courage to do what you did, because I believe it's easier to escape, if I'm not mistaken. It's easier to say no. It's easier to walk away. Um, it's a one-time pain. Yeah, it's a one-time pain, basically. That's why you think it's a one-time pain. But you forget about that perpetuity. Um, I would say blaming pain that usually comes in our mind as speak and say, ah, oh, I wish I have done this. I wish I have done that. And usually opportunities never come twice, if you agree with me. Yeah. And I think as well, Mo, a lot, a lot of the time, what happens is people will make that choice to run away before they've committed. So at this point I was already committed to it because I'd had six weeks of rehearsals, you know, I'd already said yes, but the easy thing would have been to say no to the very first time it came up when they offered me the role. And this is what a lot of people do when they get offered to speak, when they get offered to come on a podcast, they say no immediately and they never give themselves the chance to face that fear later on. Right. Couldn't agree more with you. And that would take me to this question, which is on LinkedIn, you mentioned a golden rule, if I'm not mistaken, I'm just trying to quote it right. A golden rule of public speaking is to speak to give, not to get, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners and perhaps provide an example? Of course. Yeah. So speaking to give versus speaking to get. When you're speaking to get something, you want to get something from the audience. You want them to like you, you want them to approve of you, you want them to uh, think that you're a, a good speaker, right? And these are the kind of thoughts that are going on in the person's mind before they step on stage. And so they're seeking from the audience, I want your approval, I want your acceptance, I want you to like me, I want you to buy my services, whatever it is. This is their main focus, to get something. 
And metaphorically, that puts you in a position of, of you know, almost your hands are out begging because you're, you, you feel like you need something from them. Not a very powerful or confident mindset to have going into things. So the opposite of that, speaking to give, is to focus 100% on what you are there to offer the audience. An idea, an inspiration, a service, uh, an education of some kind, right? It doesn't have to be something huge and grand. If you're in a team meeting, maybe you have some important information that you need to relate. If you're pitching, maybe you really have a service that is going to help this person succeed in their own business and it's, you're given value. So if you can focus on what you're there to give, it reframes the situation in your mind and it puts you in a more powerful position going out onto stage. I see you. I see you. So I think you have got a unique take on feedback, critical yet encouraging, I would say. How should someone, because I keep getting this question a lot, how should someone looking to grow their public speaking skills seek and interpret feedback. Well, you're a great example of this, Mo, because when you came to the masterclass, you were already a very competent speaker. You've been on big stages, you've been in conferences, you've done a lot. And I think one of the first things you said to me was that you wanted to get more feedback because even though you've had a good reception, you maybe hadn't had those specific bits of feedback. And it's a great mindset to have, but it's why you've got to the position that you are right now. But a lot of people, they don't have access to that feedback. In work, in their family, in their colleagues, people tend to just want to be nice and be encouraging, but they don't really dig into what you need to do differently, what you need to change. So people don't get access to that feedback. They don't get that access to how they can improve. So feedback is the quickest way to get better at anything, right? And to have someone who is a few uh, years further down the line than you are is able to give you that critique and that encouragement. Which is why public speaking coaching and public speaking training is an industry, right? Because it's necessary. People need it. The flip side of that is being able to take criticism. And some people, I fortunately very rarely come into contact with these people, but I have seen it where they really struggle to take it. They feel like there's an ego that's being attacked when someone tells them to do something differently. So you really have to lower your own defenses in order to take on other people's feedback in the most objective way. Interesting you say that because now I'm just thinking of this. When you say there is an issue with feedback, is it a recipient issue or question seeker issue? Is it because people are unable to say, can you give me a feedback about my skills? Or is it because the person have been asked to give the feedback is unable to provide critical feedback? Which one? I think both can be an issue, Mel. So if I went and asked the average person on the street about my e-commerce business, right? And I asked them for some feedback on my website. They might look at it and just say, oh, the website's great, Ed. I really like it. That'd be it. If I come and ask someone like you, you're going to have a hundred different, very precise things that you can tell me to tweak and change because you've got that expertise, right? And it's the same with speaking. If you ask someone who is just a normal everyday person about your speech or your presentation, it's going to be surface level feedback that you get. So you need to ask someone who has got a bit of expertise in that field. Would it make sense if somebody is hiring a great professional like yourself to train them and educate them to master and leverage their speaking skills and take it to the next level? And then, as you mentioned earlier, their ego gets higher and they start saying, mm, not really, that's not what I really meant when I said, give me the feedback. 
Did you get my point? Like if I'm happy to hire you to help me and you start to help me, why would I then mentally criticize your feedback? Like how do you handle that situation? So if someone isn't open to the feedback, is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So fortunately, touch wood, all of my clients are always very open to feedback. I've not had that issue, but it happens. It happens all the time. People get um, spiky and they don't want to take that feedback on. If that happens, then as the person trying to help, you have to just, you know, you can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped. So, you know, they have to be open. It has to be a, has to be a willing conversation for it to work. Absolutely. Like if they can't help themselves, you can't help them, basically. You can't push it further. You can't convince them that you need my help if they don't see the value. There's a great anecdote about this, about two monks, right? One young monk climbs up a high mountain to meet a, an older monk to be taught by him to figure out what the next secret is. And they sit down for tea and the older monk starts filling his cup. And as the cup is filled, it starts to overflow. And the older monk carries on pouring the tea and it's spilling everywhere. And the young monk says, what are you doing? You've had the tea. Well, he says, just your mind, your mind is already full. I can't teach you anything else. You need to clear your mind first. That's a great example. I'm 100% should use that in your training, to be honest with you. Can you walk me and everybody through a common myth that I have been hearing, particularly recently, about public speaking that you often encounter and debunk it? Yeah, so there's a few myths, Mo, but I think the most important one that gets so many people is the myth that public speaking is somehow a gift that certain people are born with, right? Some people are born great speakers, other people are not. Some people are born confident, other people are not. Now, like any myth, there is a grain of truth to this, okay? Because you look around and some people do seem to naturally be able to speak very, very articulately and very enthusiastically, and other people really struggle. But it's not that they're born different, it's that they've had different life experiences, right? You might have gone through school and been asked to do more speaking. You might have done more in your college years. You might have had a job where you've had to do more. Your family situation might have encouraged you to be more vocal. There's a million different things, but the way you need to look at it is just a level of experience that someone has had. And if that person has been, you know, trying and doing this for many more years and they've had a childhood that's stimulated and stimulated them in that sense, then they're going to feel like they're a lot more natural, but it's, it's something that anyone can learn. It is a skill. And like any skill, you can get better of it with practice. So please, anyone listening, don't think of it as something that you are born with or not. So if I've been struggling throughout my childhood, I've been bullied. Uh, I've been, you know, that kind of kid that people usually love to avoid and love not to talk to. And I've been that stay lonely kind of thing. But I always feel like I want to speak, but I don't have that inside me. Do you think there's a possibility, even 1%, that I could make it? But in practice, not theoretically speaking, in practice. 100% yes, Mo. And that type of person usually goes into a job. I hate to stereotype, but they might go into IT or into tech, you know, they go into something where they can hide behind the computer. And then for the rest of their life, they still haven't had that experience. And then maybe they've got to some success in their life. And now they've been asked to deliver a keynote or to come on a podcast. And now they're suddenly like, oh my God, I can't do this at all, right? So it takes a little while longer, right? They're starting from further behind. So they have to build the fundamentals first before they can uh, progress, right? There's no way around it. There's no magic pill. 
but you can speed up that process with a bit of help, with a bit of training. So learning public speaking is not just to become a public speaker. It could also fit if you are working in the corporate industry and you can use that somewhere, as you said, presentation, et cetera, et cetera. Of course. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of people I work with, Mo, some of them like yourself want to be out on stages, being a real professional speaker. And that's obviously very fun to work with people like that. But a lot of people are a bit more down to earth in terms of they just want to be able to deliver a great presentation. They want to be able to feel more of a, more leadership in their role. Maybe they want to, you know, go onto a panel and be able to be feeling confident in doing so. So a lot of different objectives around there, but the same skill set underneath. Speaking of which, for our entrepreneurial audience, why is mastering public speaking a non-negotiable skill, in your opinion, particularly in the world of business? I have seen a bit of a change recently. You've probably noticed this too, in that people who are trying to get ahead either in the corporate world or in their own business as a founder, as a, a business starter, they tend to need to go and express themselves more. They either, uh, if they're trying to climb the corporate ladder, for instance, they're going to have to probably go and do panels, do fireside chats, you know, go and speak at events for their industry. These are just like kind of necessary requirements now a lot of the time. But on the business entrepreneurial side of things, you have to pitch, you have to promote yourself, you have to probably do videos on LinkedIn. It's become such a necessary part of yeah, promotion and success. And I think more and more people are catching on to this, that if they don't push themselves if they don't learn to express themselves confidently, they kind of get left behind. And the other people who are willing to do that end up becoming more visible, more valuable, and getting ahead of them. So with that being said, what's the one, just only one technique or main technique, I would say, that you teach in your masterclass that our listeners could apply right now to improve their speaking presence? Okay. There's a few different ways that I could approach this one though. So let me have a think about that. I, I think maybe the one thing that people get wrong is, is and this isn't necessarily a technique as such, but it's a, a mindset shift that needs to happen, which is to let go of being perfect. Because a lot of people really watch everybody else and go, oh my God, Mo is so confident. This guy is so charismatic. This person's so articulate. I feel such a long way from where they are. What's the point? And I think you really have to get rid of that mindset and have a beginner's mindset and just think, I'm going to get myself out there. I'm going to practice. I'm going to maybe, you know, stumble forwards, but in doing so, I will learn. And unless people make that shift, then they just remain stuck. So the best tip for anyone who wants to get started is you just have to get started in small ways, right? Find a local community group go and deliver a talk to them, maybe a meetup, maybe an Eventbrite thing, networking group. There's loads of things you can start with. I love that. Absolutely. Actually, yeah, I noticed, Ed, that you leave nothing for me to say after you. You say all the good things. <laughs> I'm pretty sure our listeners will be enjoying each and every letter that you said, which would take me to this. You have helped professionals, including myself. Like I have attended webinars with uh, Vinil. If you know him, the, the Australian guy. Okay. Um, I've been doing webinars with him, with others, with yourself. You have massively influenced my skills. Not me, but so many people from TEDx speakers to business leaders. What are some of the common challenges they face 
and how do you help them overcome these? And we'll talk about professionals so they know what they're doing. Okay, so I think the biggest challenge that professional speakers have or people who are making that transition to become a professional speaker is really nailing their content and really nailing how they come across because usually they have the confidence. Usually they're able to speak with skill. They can engage people and they can hold a crowd, but it's really drilling down to what their message is. That's the real trick of it. So you might've seen certain TED Talks where it's just captivating from the moment that it starts to the end, right? And those 18 minutes or whatever it is, they just fly by in an instant. And that's because every word and every sentence has been crafted and perfected to a really kind of, uh, you know, very, very precise degree. It's a little bit like a play in a sense. You know, I, I come from the background of acting in terms of you have a script, you memorize it, you have your, every entrance and exit, every gesture, every, every expression, it's all being finessed. And some people really hate to work like this because they, they feel very um, burdened by that and they want to have the spontaneity. They want to be able to just go on stage and, you know, kind of say whatever comes to mind. And there's totally a place for that as well, for sure. But I think anyone who wants to really make an impression and become a professional speaker, they have to start moving towards this idea of preparing like a professional. And that means rehearsing, it means practicing, it means knowing your speech inside out and really finessing the delivery. Awesome. I noticed that when you just, when you said that so far, maybe you have said it 50 to 100 times about authenticity. You talk a lot, you talked a lot about how it's very important that you leverage authenticity when speaking. How can someone remain truly authentic yet adapt their style to different audiences, I would say, or different settings? That's a really good question, Mo. A lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people struggle with feeling like they're being inauthentic when they are growing. Okay. So when they start to become more confident, they start to adopt their body language or they start to speak in a slightly different way. They feel like, oh, I'm being inauthentic because it's not the real me. And I think this is such a, a silly way to think about it because we should all be growing as people. We should all be changing, right? If you see me a year from now, Mo, I would like you to see a different version of Ed. Otherwise I've stagnated, right? And the same thing for, for all of us, we should be growing and evolving. So that's the first thing to say is that it's not inauthentic to develop and to change your style in certain ways. I think authenticity really comes down to intention. So let's say I'm speaking to, you know, I might be speaking to my friends. I might be speaking to my grandma. I might be speaking to a client. I'm going to show up a little bit differently in all of these situations, right? I might speak a little bit differently. I'm going to adapt to different people. That's not inauthentic as far as I'm concerned, as long as my intention is, is true and is good. Okay. So if I go on stage and I'm trying to sell you something secretly without really making it clear, that's inauthentic. If I'm trying to persuade a client to buy and I'm using some tactics that are not very ethical, that's inauthentic. But as long as your intention is good, then I think authenticity is there. And that's how I try to think about it. Because otherwise you can kind of wrap yourself in knots thinking, you know, is this the real me? Am I showing up right? Am I being true to myself? It all gets a little bit difficult to comprehend. Don't you think, based on what you just mentioned, when it comes to authenticity, that is very subjective. Like maybe if we met for the first time, you will not be able to know if I'm being genuine person or otherwise, uh, which same thing with, which is what people use when it comes to sales. 
if you're talking to a salesperson for the first time, second time, third time, and they're trying to use those unethical, I would say, uh, bullets to close a deal or to achieve whatever they want to achieve, it's very hard because it all comes down to the tone of voice, to the body language, the eye contact, uh, to how confident you are when you're saying whatever you're saying. So even if I'm lying to you 100%, it would be very hard for you to to get that. So don't you think authenticity is something that people can follow their the authenticity, I would say, skills or parameters so people can think they're being authentic, if you know what I mean. Don't you think it's something that people can acquire, although it could be faked, but still acquired? Yes. So this is, this is where the wording gets a little bit, a little bit tricky. So what you're saying is you can present yourself in such a way that you seem very honest, you seem very truthful, and then people might think that you are, even if you're not, simply by how you're coming across, right? And this is what politicians get, get trained in, Mo, you know, because politicians are trained in how to, become, to come across in the most believable, honest way, to win over the biggest amount of people watching at home. There are a lot of body language things and vocal tricks that people can try to tinker with. But even, here's the interesting thing, even politicians who probably get the most training because, you know, they, they, they can afford to have these experts come in and tell, tell them exactly how to put their message across. Even then, to a trained eye, you can often tell that when they're being inauthentic. And there are, there's some great channels on YouTube, uh, body language channels, where they will break down famous political speeches and they'll point out the inconsistencies and how they can tell that this person isn't, isn't really telling the truth, isn't really believing it. And, and so I guess you can, maybe, you can maybe fool the general public, but to an expert, you can always tell when someone's been inauthentic. So it can be temporarily acquired, which will not be acquired. It will be like, a, you know, when you buy anything and it says, this is high copy, you got my point? So you can mislead whoever you want to mislead, temporary. But sooner or later, your real character will be burst on the water. I think that's exactly right, Mo. Yeah, you can only get away with it for so long, can't you? So in, in your massive and 10 out of 10 experience, how does the fear of public speaking compare with other common fears? And what's the first step towards conquering it? Okay, Mo, I'll tell you a story, right? When I was 10 years old, I went to holiday in Greece, my first time holidaying abroad. And I fell in love with the outdoor pool. So I kept jumping in and out of the pool, in and out, in and out all day, three days. The other holiday people were sick of me because they just, I kept splashing everyone. And I went in and out of the pool so many times that I got an ear infection somehow. Um, and so my mum had to call a local doctor to come around because this ear infection had somehow made me really sick. So the doctor arrives to our apartment I'm crying in bed, I'm feeling terrible. I'm only, you know, only a, a little boy. And he opens this briefcase and pulls out this massive needle. I'm talking a huge, big thing, right? Wow. It was probably as long as my hand, right? This needle. So it, at, to a, at the time it looked pretty big. So I went to pull my sleeve down and he said, no, no, not in the sleeve, not in the arm. It's going to be in your backside. Oh, so I had to bend over the bed, pull my pants down and he put this huge needle right in my, in my bush. Oh my goodness. Okay. And, yeah. And ever since then though, I have had a petrifying fear of needles. I, I can't, can't do needles. 
my girlfriend had to get some blood taken a year or so ago. I fainted while she was getting her blood taken. I had to, I had to be taken outside, right? So in answer to your question, okay, different fears. The thing that unites them is that they all are a, a reaction that feels like it's out of our control. Okay. I can't control this reaction when I see a needle. It just, just happens to me. And likewise, when people get really anxious speaking in public, they can't control it. But here is the thing that I want people to know. There's been a lot of uh, psychological research done into this, into overcoming fears. And as I'm sure you've heard of, the, one of the best uh, theories is exposure. If you expose yourself to the thing you're afraid of, then that fear diminishes. But here's the thing, that exposure has to be voluntary. So they did a study where they got two groups of people and they inflicted difficult circumstances on both people. Right? They put them through horrible situations that were uncomfortable. The first group, they weren't willing. They just, they just made them do these horrible things without the you know, consent or without them really wanting to do it. The second group, they set the experiment up so that they were volunteering in their minds to go through these ordeals. And the group that volunteered had a completely different outcome. That mindset shift of I'm choosing to do this completely changes how we react versus I'm being made to do this. So if you ever get pushed on stage unwillingly, you're probably not going to have a great experience. But even if you're scared, if you say, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to step out of my own will, it's going to change the game. Well, I don't want this to end, to be honest for you. I do not want this to end. But I know everything, everything good usually comes to an end. So lastly, before I let you go, because I, I don't want to let you go, but I have to let you go at some point. So if you could give one piece of golden nugget to our budding entrepreneurs on making a lasting impact with their first public speech, what would it be? So to make a lasting impact on your first public speech, obviously a lot of what we said is important though. Having your delivery, right? Having your skills, having the confidence, all of these things are really important. But I think more important than that for impact, and I'll borrow the tagline from Ted to explain this point, because the tagline from Ted is ideas worth sharing. Ideas worth sharing. And it's so simple, but it's so profound because every TED talk at the very heart of it, the, the nucleus is an idea worth sharing. And that is what makes the talk. And I think a lot of people, when they go in to do their first talk, they kind of lose this and they kind of just start telling everyone uh, a, bit, a little bit about this and my background. And, you know, they don't always get to the very heart of what the idea is worth sharing. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have a world-changing idea to solve poverty or to solve hunger. It can be an idea worth sharing in your little tiny niche in your industry, right? Maybe some tech person in some very uh, strange niche has got an idea that is really impactful to other people working in, in his little niche industry. Fantastic. But you have to figure out what your idea is that's worth sharing. And once you have that, you can start building out everything else. With those golden nuggets from Ed to all of our entrepreneurs, to all of our listeners, I'm 100% certain you're all ready to set up your public speaking game. You should. And I believe you always have to remember, it's not just about what you say, but how you say it. So thank you for tuning in. And a big thank you to Ed for sharing this expertise. Check out Project Charisma. 
for more information on how to bring your speaking skills to life. Until next time, keep speaking with confidence and watch entrepreneurial journey. So thank you very much, Ed, for today's episode. I'm really glad that you managed to make it. And I always wish you all the best of luck. Thank you for having me, Mel. Thank you for joining us at The Entrepreneur's Den. Remember, you are destined for greatness, break barriers, fly high, and leave your unique mark. Enjoyed the episode today? Share your thoughts on social media and suggest future topics. Hit subscribe, share with a friend, and keep an ear out for more inspiration. I'm Mo, and I will see you next time. Until then, stay curious and keep pushing. Just know that your path to greatness starts here.